Morning. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 2. I want to continue studying the passage we began last Lord's Day. Luke's account of the birth of Jesus Christ. Last uh, Sunday we studied the setting of Christ's birth in verses 1 through 7. This morning we want to move on to the announcement of Christ's birth in 8 through 12. I want to encourage you before I read today's passage to consider Wednesday night bringing yourself and your family to our evening of lessons and carols where our really simple format is that we retell the uh, Christmas story, we let the Word of God retell the Christmas story as we, we read passages related to Christ's birth from Genesis all the way through uh, the Gospel of John as we hear songs and sing about the birth of Christ uh, really has become a special time over the past few years for our church family. I want to invite you this Wednesday at 7 p.m. Uh, to join us uh, and make it a part of your Christmas celebration. Our passage today, though, Luke uh, 2, 8 through 12, let me read these verses and uh, ask for the Lord's help as we begin today. Hear the word of the Lord. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The word of God. May he add his blessing to what we've read. Let me ask for his help briefly. Father, may the words, uh, words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your, your sight. Lord, my strength and my redeemer, quicken us. Help us now, give us a fresh sense of the import of these verses, these familiar verses. Guard us from taking them nonchalantly, casually. Strengthen me to preach your word, Father. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, according to Dr. John MacArthur, the announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ heralds the greatest good news that the world has ever heard. The greatest good news that the world has ever heard. Perhaps you wouldn't put it in that category this morning. Uh, perhaps you're expecting and waiting for your own kind of good news and you wouldn't quite... Uh, put the birth of Christ into the category of the greatest good news. Perhaps this seems a little over the top to you. Maybe, maybe John MacArthur is overstating the case. The, really, the greatest good news the world has 
has ever heard? Has he overstated it, or is this an accurate portrayal of reality? I believe he's right on the money. That this is an accurate statement. And I believe it's an accurate statement because of four components, four parts, if you will, found in the announcement of Christ's birth. I think that this is the greatest announcement of good news because of four things found in this announcement, uh, this announcement of the birth of Christ. The first component that we encounter is an unexpected audience. The birth of Jesus Christ is, is announced to the least likely group of people. Notice verse 8. And in the same region... And let me just pause with that opening phrase of verse 8. And this reminds us of our context. As I mentioned, we, we previously looked at the setting of Christ's uh, birth in verses 1 through 7. Uh, last Sunday morning, we observed the political setting, the prophetic setting, and the personal setting. And this last one, the personal setting, the, the personal circumstances surrounding Christ's birth were, were miserable. Far from home because Joseph and Mary had to register in the town of their ancestor David. And due to overcrowding from the large influx of travelers, Mary is, is forced to give birth to Jesus in either some kind of lean-to stable or, or uh, some manner of cave. Whatever it was, it was where animals were usually kept. Because an animal's feeding trough becomes Jesus' first bassinet. It was a scene of utter humility and, and, and anonymity. Christ was born completely anonymous until we get to verse 8. And in the same region, verse 8 goes on to say, There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. The, the announcement could not have come to a more lowly group than this. It was not made in faraway Rome to the emperor Caesar Augustus, nor was it made in nearby Jerusalem to King Herod. The announcement of Christ's birth is made to men who made their living tending sheep, sheep that would be offered in sac as sacrifices in Jerusalem. What makes them such an unlikely audience for this most important of announcements? Well, it says in verse 8 that they were out in the field. Uh, that is important for, our, for us today because it tells us, well, it's a present participle and it describes ongoing action. It tells us these men weren't just out for the evening, but that they made their home in the outdoors. They, they continually lived outside with their flocks. And, and what this means is that it, it was extremely difficult for them to keep the regulations of the Mosaic Law. Uh, not to mention the requirements that the Pharisees piled on top of the, the law of Moses. Because of this, 
because they, they lived outside and weren't able to fulfill all the regulations of the law, they were often looked down upon by the general population as, as unspiritual men. They, they, they were despised by the general public. Of course, this is not God's opinion of shepherds. God himself is referred to as the shepherd of Israel. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd in John chapter 10. But because these men were unable to keep many of the laws uh, from the Old Testament, they were frowned upon, looked down upon, even despised by many in the general population. Well, to make matters worse, uh, men of this occupation weren't always the most upstanding citizens of, of the town. It seems they had trouble with their pronouns. Uh, they often would confuse the words thine with mine. Uh, and that pronoun trouble got them into uh, a lot of hot water. In fact, by the end of the New Testament era, shepherds were viewed so poorly that they weren't allowed to give testimony in, in court. They grew to have very poor reputations as the years progressed. Well, Pastor Rob, as interesting as that is, what difference does it make? What's the significance of this announcement coming to uh, shepherds? And why should you and I be encouraged by this? And why is this fact good news for you and me? It reveals that God doesn't send the good news to the spiritual elite like scribes and Pharisees. He doesn't send the good news to people who have their act together. He doesn't make this announcement to the movers and shakers of the world. He sends the good news to poor, downtrodden people like these lowly shepherds. And to people like you and me. This is in keeping with what Scripture announced the Messiah would be like. Just a moment ago, we read this verse in Isaiah 61. And look at what God's Word says. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And then I, I want you to consider these words from Matthew 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And then consider these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul writes, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God shows what is foolish in the world to, to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing, things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God doesn't send the good news to the spiritual elite, but to poor downtrodden sinners like these shepherds and to people like you and I praise the Lord. Listen to Pastor Ken Hughes. He explains it, that the message came to shepherds first and not to the high and mighty reminds us that God comes to the needy, the poor in spirit. Shepherds were despised by the good, respectable people of the day. God comes only to those who sense their need. He does not come to the self-sufficient. The gospel is for those who know they need Jesus. So I put it to you this morning, if you're hurting, if you're depressed, if you're downtrodden, if you're worn out, if you're just flat out tired, this good news is for people like you and me not for those who have their acts together. That's why it's great news and the greatest news the world has ever heard because it comes to a completely unexpected audience, not to the high and mighty, but to the least likely, to a lowly group of shepherds much like you and me. Well, there's a, another component that goes into this, this announcement. Not only is there an unexpected audience, the second component of this announcement that makes it such good news is, is unexpected grace. The shepherds experience the unexpected grace of God. I want to point out three things about this unexpected grace. And first, I want you to notice the angel of God. As he appears in verse 9, look at the text of, of your Bible. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. This word appeared means to stand over someone or, or stand before someone. And often it communicates the idea of a suddenness to the appearing. And so picture in the middle of this still dark night, one of God's angels one of these holy, strong, and brilliant male angels who was ever scared by the junk portrayed as angels that you see on wrapping paper and Christian gifts and all that nonsense and little baby cherubs. This is my own personal opinion coming out, you can tell. It's just, it's just flatly unbiblical. Angels in the word of God were mighty warriors. Put a G.I. Joe on top of your Christmas tree for Pete's sakes. <laughs> One of these holy, 
and strong and brilliant and uh, uh, angelic beings suddenly appear standing by the angels. They did not see him approaching. And from the angel, the second thing we see is the glory of God. Verse 9 goes on to say, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, bad enough that the angel appeared out of nowhere, but his appearance was also accompanied by the blinding and terrifying glory of God. This heavenly brightness was the radiant glory of, of the angel standing in God's presence. Uh, in Exodus, we read about Moses. And when he came down from Mount Sinai, he had to cover his face because he radiated the glory of God and the Israelites were afraid of him. This angelic being, no doubt, standing near the throne of God radiated uh, his glory to an even greater extent. Verse 9 says, look at the words, shone around them. So this is not a, a small light. We're talking about God's glory is illuminating the entire setting. And the shepherds respond to the glory of God the way any normal person would. They were frightened out of their minds. Verse 9 says, and they were filled with great fear, literally, and they feared a feared a great fear. It's, it's a literary device stressing the intensity of their fear. And another version says they were terrified, but I always come back to the King James, which says so eloquently, they were sore afraid. This is the normal response or should be the normal response to any human in the presence of an angel in the sight of God's glory. And we see this is a common response throughout Scripture. Consider this well-known response from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6 as he's standing before the throne. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. Again, the older version says, For I am undone. I'm ruined. It's curtains. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the, the King, the Lord of hosts. And then when Jesus performs the miracle of the great catch, Peter responds in a similar fashion. But when Simon Peter saw it, saw the miracle before him that Christ had just performed of, of filling the nets with fish, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Isaiah and Peter respond like this because they become keenly aware of their sinful condition as they stand before the, the glory of God. And no doubt these shepherds were feeling something akin to Isaiah and Peter. And no doubt they too had become acutely aware of their sinfulness in the presence of this radiant glory. And, and like Isaiah likely thought that they too were undone, ruined, destroyed by the radiance of this holy light. But also, like Isaiah and Peter, 
They are not met by the wrath of God. They are met by the grace of God. Expecting obliteration like Isaiah and experiencing fear like Peter. They encounter the grace of God instead. Look at verse 10. And the angel of the Lord said to them, Fear not. Uh, the uh, tense gives it the meaning of stop being afraid. And, and I, I, you know, it's, uh, I don't know if you've ever been frightened out of your mind and, and, and someone walks up to you and says, don't be afraid. And you go, right, I'll stop right now. How silly of me. It's, it's not a switch, is it? When you've had the shock of your life and someone says, you know, uh, like good old Bob Newhart, well, just stop it. Just stop it. Fear not. For behold... Uh, uh, an intensive particle. Pay attention to this. Take note. Uh, even, forgive me for, for being too casual, check this out. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. He wasn't bringing news of their impending destruction. He brought news of, of their salvation. Consider how often fearful men are not met with the wrath of God, but with the grace of God, just like them. On an everyday basis, mankind usually experiences the grace of God, not his wrath. God described just how gracious he was and how patient he was to Moses on Mount Sinai. Exodus 34, 6 says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious God, slow, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation, alluding to these very words, David writes in Psalm 103, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. And in the book of Nehemiah, it says, But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This is why the prophet Jonah ran away from Nineveh to Tarshish, because he knew the Lord was this kind of God, didn't he? Jonah hated the Assyrians. They were cruel, and Jonah wanted God to drop the hammer on them. 
And, and what happened? Well, Nineveh turned from her sin. They repented. And Jonah complains to the Lord, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew you would forgive them. The attribute of God that mankind normally encounters on an everyday basis is not his wrath, but his grace and forbearance, and patience. Paul said it like this in Romans, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness, and forbearance, and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? John MacArthur sums it up. Unlike the false gods of Israel, Israel's pagan neighbors, the God of Israel, the only true, eternal, and loving God is by nature compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. There's a Christian author named Philip Yancey, and he writes about this unexpected grace. He says, I learned about incarnation when I kept a saltwater aquarium. Management of a marine aquarium, I discovered, is no easy task. I had to run a portable chemical laboratory to monitor the nitrate levels and the ammonia content. I pumped in vitamins and antibiotics and sulfa drugs and enough enzymes to make a rock grow. I filtered the water through glass fibers and charcoal and exposed it to ultraviolet light. You would think in view of all the energy expended on their behalf that my fish would at least be grateful. Not so. Every time my shadow loomed above the tank, they dove for cover into the nearest shell. They showed me one emotion only. Fear. Although I opened the lid and dropped in food on a regular schedule three times a day, they responded to each visit as a sure sign of my designs to torture them. I could not convince them of my true concern. To my fish, I was deity. I was too large for them. My actions too incomprehensible. My acts of mercy they saw as cruelty. My attempts at healing they viewed as destruction. To change their perceptions, I began to see, would require a form of incarnation. I would have to become a fish and speak to them in a language they can understand. Oh, aren't we like the shepherds? Hmm. Expecting the hammer to drop. When God says, I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I'm slow to anger. And we see this profound grace displayed instead of the wrath they expected. 
Why is the announcement of Christ's birth the greatest news the world has ever heard? Be because it brings unexpected grace. This was not an announcement of destruction, but of salvation through Jesus Christ. Well, then there's a third component we see. The third component we see in Christ's birth is an unexpected title. A better heading should be unexpected titles because there's actually three titles uh, that communicate the heart and essence of the angel's good news. Look at verse 11 with me. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The first title the angel uses for Jesus. Oh, I put them all up there at once. Well, there they are. <laughs> is Savior. And the way that the sentence is structured uh, in the original language stresses this first term. It's as though the angels are saying, the angel is saying, above all else, this child will be a Savior. This term uh, meant a deliverer or redeemer. Uh, this not only describes the greatness of Mary's son, but it also puts Caesar Augustus in his place because he too was sometimes uh, ascribed this very term, soter, savior. And it's as though the angel is not only announcing that their savior is born, but he's also saying enough about Caesar Augustus. Forget about him. Here's the real Savior. And this is, of course, how Gabriel announced uh, Jesus' name in Joseph's dream. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the first title you see is, is Savior, but then he goes on to call, them, call him Christ. This is not merely Jesus' last name, as so many think Jesus Christ. It's just his first and last name. This is a title. This title is the Greek translation of the Hebrew term Messiah. And that means anointed one. Anointed with oil, that is. In the Old Testament era, the priests and the prophets... And the kings were all anointed with oil before they served the Lord. It was, a, it was a metaphor for the Spirit's ministry covering them. So it, really every king of Israel could be referred to as the, uh, as the anointed one. But there was also a, a very special anointed one that they looked forward to the anointed one described by Isaiah and other prophets, the one God would ultimately send to be their deliverer, be their redeemer. And the angel's use of this title indicates that this newborn child was not just another anointed one. He was the anointed one, the one God had sent uh, to deliver his people from their sins. So just pause and think about the cumulative effect these names would have on these shepherds. Possibly, uh, possibly uh, somewhat God-fearing men, 
some familiarity with, with truth. And, and if so, these names would begin to pile up and, and begin to, with each name, cause them to take a step back, realizing the magnitude of this person that's being announced to them. Well, well finally, they get to the third title, which is Lord. Sounds fairly innocuous. And, and we commonly refer to him as Lord. And the title can simply mean master. But this same term, kurios, is used in the Greek Old Testament to translate God's covenant name, Yahweh. So not only is this newborn child Israel's savior, He's also the anointed one, the Messiah. And to top it all off, this newborn child is actually none other than God himself. The covenant-keeping Yahweh of the Old Testament scriptures. And with these three titles now piled on, to each other, the, the shepherds are no doubt staggering under the weight of these titles. The greatness of this newborn child is, is beyond belief. He's your Savior. He's Israel's Messiah. And he is God, a very God. Alexander III of Macedon, who you and I know as Alexander the Great, or A.T. Great, if you prefer, <laughs> succeeded his father, King Philip II, to the throne at the age of 20. He spent most of his ruling years conducting a military campaign throughout Western Asia and Northeastern Africa, and by the age of 30, he had created one of the largest empires in history, stretching from Greece to Northwestern India, he was undefeated in battle and is widely con considered still to be one of history's greatest and most successful military commanders. Alexander the Great's name is synonymous with conquest. A man in his army had been accused and brought before Alexander of cowardice in battle. Brought before Alexander in profound shame, Alexander inquired what the man's name was. He replied softly, Alexander. I can't hear you, the ruler stated. The man said a little louder, Alexander. The process is repeated one more time after which Alexander the Great commented, either change your name or change your conduct. His name implied inherent greatness and conquest and no coward would be allowed to share his name. Just like the names this angel used. The significance of these titles and the weight they bore was not lost on the shepherds. 
And hearing these names pile up must have been overwhelming. The weight of these names would have certainly pressed home the incredible goodness of the angel's good news. So why is this the, the announcement of Christ's birth, the greatest news the world has ever heard? Because it contains unexpected titles or an unexpected title if you prefer the child born in Bethlehem was their savior their messiah and their God there's a fourth component to this announcement the fourth component of the angel's birth announcement was an unexpected sign the sign by which the shepherds could identify their God and King and Messiah was truly shocking. Look at verse 12 in your Bible. It says, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. This newborn Savior this Messiah and God had entered their world by becoming a real human baby. He didn't merely seem human as some in the ancient world believed Christ to be, later shown to be heretics, he didn't just seem human. He became a genuinely finite human being. Listen to Dr. Kent Hughes explain it. As a, as a real baby in the cradle, Jesus watched his tiny clenched fist in uncomprehending fascination, just like any other baby. He did not fake babyhood. He did not say to himself, you all think I am a pre-articulate baby discovering I have a hand. Actually, I am God admiring my brilliant invention. I am your creator, and I understand every word you're saying. Not at all. He was not pretending. This was not a postnatal spoof. He was a baby. This means that Christ had laid aside the independent use of his attributes. He did not give up those attributes. He entrusted their use to God the Father. Again, Kent Hughes explains, when he was born, God the Son placed the exercise of his all-powerfulness and all-presence and all-knowingness under the discretion of God his Father. In the incarnation, the infinite God both became finite man and remained infinite God. He became a baby. Sympathetic resonance is the scientific fact that if you possess two identical tuning forks, and strike one, the other will begin to vibrate 
in sympathetic resonance. Strike one tuning fork, and if it's the same pitch, the other one will begin vibrating too. If you had two pianos in the same room that were tuned the same and struck one note, the same note on the other piano would respond in sympathetic resonance. Such a sympathetic resonance exists between Jesus Christ and us. Because he became fully human, except without sin. When a note of sorrow is struck in our lives, it resonates in his humanity. Listen to this quote. Christ's instrument, his humanity, was like ours in every way, except that he had no sin. And when a chord is struck in the weakness of our human instrument... It resonates in His. There is no note of human experience that does not play in Christ's as well. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He has an unequaled capacity for sympathy it goes far beyond intellectual understanding. Jesus does not just imagine how his children feel. He feels it. When Christ came down, he came all the way down and became fully human yet without sin. Our Savior, Messiah, and God didn't just seem human. He really became a human baby. That's why this sign is so unexpected and so shocking. Consider the way Paul said it in Philippians chapter 2. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. Why is the announcement of Christ's birth uh, the greatest news the world has ever heard because of this unexpected sign? The infinite, eternal Son of God became a genuine, finite human baby. Well, according to John MacArthur, uh, this announcement, uh, the announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ heralds the greatest good news that the world has ever heard. And I believe that he is correct. And I believe his statement is accurate because of these four components that we find in our passage today. This unexpected audience, 
the most unlikely people to announce the birth of Christ to. This uh, second component, unexpected grace. The shepherds expecting the hammer receive the grace of God, uh, an announcement of salvation. Because of unexpected titles of all that Christ is, he is Savior and, and Messiah and God of very God. And lastly, this fourth component, be this unexpected sign that he would be born a human baby. The announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ heralds the greatest good news that the world has ever heard. And so, Christ Jesus, we're grateful that you announced your birth to lowly people like us. Thank you that you do not require us to have our act together, but that your good news, your gospel, your grace comes to lowly people like the shepherds and lowly people like us seated here this morning. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that your offer brings not an announcement of destruction, but an announcement of salvation through faith in you. Thank you, Savior, that you redeem us from sin, that you are the promised deliverer and Messiah, and that you are God of very God. And lastly, we are grateful that you became a baby, a genuine, real human child. And thank you for the sympathetic resonance you share with us that when we strike a note of sorrow, you know and feel exactly what we're going through. Savior, for all this, we're, we're most grateful. Uh, Father, thank you for the gracious gift of Jesus, your Son. Uh, press the truth of these words into our hearts today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.